Okay, Psalm 44. Um, as John just stated, and we have the outline, memorable or, or uh, dramatic turns, uh, surprising turns the psalm will take. Uh, this is the first national lament that we have. And what I mean by national lament is the pronouns are generally we and our and not you, not my and mine. Now, there are a couple first person singular sections throughout this. There are a couple of sections, but usually 17 verses, 17 of the 26 verses use some kind of first person plural pronouns. So this is a community lament. This is not just one person pouring out their grief. This is the whole group pouring out their grief. And uh, this is the first of them, as I stated, but but about 11 of these throughout the Psalms. 11 in the book of Psalms. And most of those will acknowledge guilt. This one does not. There are all kinds of possibilities as far as dating. But I like this statement by Robert Alter when he said, Ancient Israel in all periods had no lack of powerful adversaries. And there's nothing in the language of the poem to enable a confident dating. It's just, it's just impossible to date it with certainty. In following the outline we have, let's just go section by section. Let's read verses 1 through 8 about Israel's glorious past. The, te- the title says, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work you did in their day, in days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land And their own arm did not save them. By your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise against us. For I trust, for I not I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries. Uh, you have put us to shame put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So on. But verses 1 through 8, our glorious past, or Israel's glorious past. Lord, we've heard the stories with with our ears. We, We have heard all the things you've done and the work that you did in our Father's days. Uh, We've heard all these things. Um, So, 
We've heard these things, and particularly he seems to refer to the conquest of the land of Canaan. Now, he he doesn't refer to the victories just in the past, but he also refers to some in the present in verse 7, but he is referring to those in the past in verse 2, you with your own hand drove out the nations. When Israel went to fight the Canaanites, how are the seven nations of Canaan described in relation to Israel? They are greater and mightier, stronger and mightier, greater and mightier. They are stronger than you are, is the point. You, with your own own hand, drove them out. And the you, in verse 2, at the start of the verse, is emphatic. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. The, the term planted is often used for God putting Israel in the land. The term planted. Uh, they will be described in Psalm 80 in verse 8 as a vine that the Lord planted in the land of Canaan. And so here, uh, you afflicted the peoples, you spread them abroad. In verse 3, by their own sword, they did not possess the land. And their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your right arm and the light of your presence, you favored them. Now in verse 3, at the end of the verse, you favored them in the New American Standard Bible. Do any of your versions have, you loved them? The NIV does. The NIV has that. I knew some versions had that. You loved them, you favored them, but you didn't win the land by your own sword and you didn't defeat your enemies by your own right arm. As Joshua was reviewing the history of Israel, in Joshua 24 and verse 12, he pictures God as giving them the land. He says this, Joshua 24 verse 12, Then I sent the hornet before you, and drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. Not by your sword or by your bow. In other words, Israel didn't win this battle by their own power. Does that mean that Israel didn't have to fight? Remember in Numbers 13 and 14, when they refused to go up into the land, that was an act of rebellion. Now they had to go and fight, but those victories never came by their power and by their might. Those victories were by the power of God. And so they are acknowledging that everything they had and every blessing they received was from the Lord. It was all from the Lord. It was all a result of His goodness and kindness and love to them. And He states in verse 4, You are my King, O God. Now this is written by the sons of Korah, 
the title stays. Maybe it was written to a king or for a king, but the acknowledgement is that the greatest king is God himself. And as a king, a king can give commands, can he? A king can give commands, and what he prays that God will command is victories for Jacob. You are my king, O God, command victories for Jacob. And that was their history. That was their history. That had been their past. They had experienced victories apparently in their lifetime. He states in verse 5 that through you we push back our adversaries. Through your name we trample down those who rise against us. And verse 6 and 7 sound a lot like verse 3. I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me, but you have saved us. From our adversaries. And you have put to shame those who hate us. I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we remember the name of the Lord our God. That was Psalm 20 verse 7. In Psalm 33, 16 and 17, a king is not saved by a large army, and a warrior is not saved by his great strength. It is the Lord who gives victory. Always, victory is from the Lord. Now, I stated that verses 6 and 7 sound a lot like verse 3. They all share a very important word. The word they share is the word saved. In verse 3, their own arm did not save them. In verse 6, nor will my sword save me. But in verse 7, but you saved us from our adversaries. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Zechariah 4 Verse 6, that is where salvation comes. And the people recognized this. They were conscious of this. In verse 8, in God we have boasted all day long. Now, I would encourage you, if you make marks in your Bible, to circle that phrase in verse 8, all day long. Because that phrase is going to be used three times in this psalm. And it's a pretty significant phrase throughout this psalm. In God we boasted all day long. What does it mean to boast in God? One thing it means is to give thanks to Him. Because it's used in parallelism in the last part of verse 8. In God we have boasted all day long and we give thanks to your name forever. Boasting in God and giving thanks to God are used in parallelism. To boast in God is to put our trust in God, to put our confidence in God. We boasted in God all day long. There is a salah there at the end of verse 8 that I may not have read earlier. But what do you see there in verses 1-8 through that you want to ask about or make a comment about? I didn't hear it the first time, but 
when I uh, was looking at it a second time, how they're reflective in verse 1. It's, I, was, I first thought, oh, this is how it is right now until the contrast came. But yeah. then it, it was, you know, yeah. it's emphasized that this is, this is what we've heard about you from the past. And is it sometimes, building on what John said, is it sometimes difficult to reconcile the past stories of God's deliverance with the present crisis that God's people may face? Sure it is. I mean, that's what this whole psalm is built on. It's hard to reconcile. Psalm 22 did the same thing on the individual level. Psalm 22 begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verses 1 and 2, after it mentions that, then in verses 3 through 5, the, the focus is on in the past, God had delivered them. And God had rescued them. And so he's basically asking, God, what is the difference between my present deliverance and Israel's, my my present distress and Israel's past deliverances? How do you reconcile those? Here, the, the, the question is the same. Israel has a glorious past, but they have a miserable present. Now again, I'm not going to make any efforts to try to identify when this was. But I want us to try to enter into really what these people must have been feeling. Enter into it as best we can to try to, um, to, try to grasp this. In verse 9, Yet you... Or but, but you, in some translations, but it's a strong contrast. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And do not go out to war with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. Now in verse 5, through you we push back our adversaries. In verse 7, but you have saved us from our adversaries. But now, things have changed in verse 10. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. Now, they're running from the opponent instead of the opponent running from them. Middle of verse 10. Those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7, you have put to shame those who hate us. But in verse 10, those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. They're taking all the spoils of victory. They're defeating us in battle and then they're taking all that belongs to us. In verse 11, you have given us a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, it's one of the phrases we're looking for, all day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. 
So verses 1 through 8 did not prepare us for verses 9 through 16. Israel's past history has not prepared them for this present distress. You've rejected us. That's strong words. You have rejected us. Look at 43 verse 2. There are all kinds of connections with Psalms 42 and 43. Even though Psalms 42 and 43 seem largely individual, there are connections with the national lament in Psalm 44. Psalm 42 verse 3. You are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why have you rejected me? And in 44.9, you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And you do not go out with our armies. Now, those of you who are in numbers will know this well. If you don't know this well, I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, but in Numbers 13 and 14, after the spies refuse to go in the land of Canaan, and God says you're going to wander 40 years in the wilderness, Israel comes back the next day and says, we have sinned, we should have gone up, and now we're going to go up in five. Moses says you better not go up in five. Because if you go up and fight, you're going to be defeated. Because Moses says, I'm not going with you, God's not going with you, and the Ark of the Covenant's not going with you. And they were trounced by their enemy. And here, he says in verse 10, or verse 9, you've not gone out with our armies. A similar statement to this is made in Psalm 60. In verse 10, Psalm 60, verse 10, Have you have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? You've rejected us. Will you not go forth with our armies? Here it is affirmed He did not go out with our armies. In verse 10, You cause us to turn back from the adversaries. And we've already talking, taken, talked about those phrases. Let's look at verse 11. You have given us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. Generally in the book of Psalms, when God is pictured as shepherd, He is the good shepherd, isn't He? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 23 verse 1. Other times he is pictured as the shepherd. And Israel is pictured as the sheep. But I want you to listen to this description of a wicked shepherd in Exodus 34 verses 5 and 6. Exodus, it's not Exodus. It's Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, 5 and 6. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and every high hill. My flock scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search for them or seek them. Now, if you read all of Ezekiel 34, which by the way, in the Old Testament is one of the best passages. It's one of the best passages in all the Bible. This passage in the Old Testament prophets is one of the best passages in all the Bible to tell us 
about elders or shepherds of God's people. It's powerful. But Israel's shepherds are rebuked and mocked and criticized because they had scattered the sheep and left them for every wild beast to eat. And yet, in Psalm 44 verse 11, God resembles the worthless shepherd of Ezekiel 34 more than He resembles the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Or at least, that's how it appears. That's how it appears. You have given us as sheep to be eaten. You scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply. I saw in my notes or in my Bible I'd written down Genesis 25, verses 24 through 34. It's a story you all know. Esau sells his birthright for a single meal. I also thought of other passages. For example, this one uh, from Amos 2. Amos 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. They sell them for a pair of sandals. They sell my people cheap. And God is rebuking Israel for this. But that's what He seems to be doing. In Psalm 44, verse 12. Look at verses 13 and 14. Notice that verse 13 uses the terms neighbors and those around us. Verse 14 uses the term nations and peoples. So whether he's dealing with people who are near, like verse 13 states, neighbors, and those around us, or whether he is dealing with people far away, like verse 14 states, nations and peoples, there are five different terms used to talk about how they are a laughing stock among all their neighbors, both near and far. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. It's never enjoyable to be the butt of jokes. For simply people to state your name as a punchline and everybody laughs. But that's what's happening to Israel. They're a reproach. They're a scoffing. They're a derision. They're a byword. They're a laughing stock. All day long, my dishonor is before me. Verse 15 says. Now, in verse 8, the people had boasted in God all day long. People boasted in God all day long. But now in verse 15, 
Their dishonor is all day long. That's a strange combination, isn't it? To boast in God all day and to be dishonored all day. And it says in verse 16, because of the voice of him who reproaches, because of the presence of the enemy and avenger. And you may want to write down beside the enemy and avenger of verse 16, Psalm 8 verse 2, where those two words were used together. Uh, Psalm 8, beautiful psalm, quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy... And the revengeful sees. Now, what did you see in verses 9 through 16 that you want to comment on or question? I don't, I don't even know how to say this, but uh, in, that, in that first section, it wasn't because the people were so good that God was doing this. This section now, it doesn't talk about the people being so bad that God is punishing them. Does it look like they think God is punishing them for something? Well, or do, do we? The next section will make it very clear that they are protesting their innocence. And this, so it, it's a question. If it does, what I would say, if it doesn't answer, if we don't answer your question, what we're about to say, you can ask it again, okay? okay. Because. I think in verses 17 through 22, he is going to, you're going to see the people, how baffled they are by this. Um, so, but it's a good question. Uh, but, but let's see if we, we have the answer in something that's going to come. What, what else do you see? Bob? Little shadows of Job's argument. Yeah. You know. In, Some, in this, it's just nation, more national. Absolutely. That is the difference. The same questions that are dealt with in the book of Job and in Psalm 73 on an individual level are dealt with in Psalm 44 on a national level. And particularly, that's going to become even clearer in light of the next section. But yes, uh, the same questions of the book of Job are dealt with here. But verses 9 through 16 is a pretty pitiful description of these people. It is a pretty pitiful description of their status. Now, I try to be thoughtful. I try to appreciate blessings. But I'll tell you, when you really start thinking about Christians living in a place where their nation is invaded by someone else, and I don't know what the streets of that place really look like. And I don't know if everybody is threatened in Ukraine. But that would be a terrifying thing if armies were marching through just shooting people randomly and taking prisoners and killing people, that would be a terrifying thing. And it was a reality that Israel knew in one way or another almost every generation of their existence. And there was hardly a generation that did not experience that. You think in America how long it has been where there's really been a war to have national involvement. It's usually been a select group that has gone because 
Uh, it wasn't a World War II thing where you just had to call for all hands on deck. And that is a blessing not to be taken for granted. And I think if we try to put ourselves in the position of Christians in a nation like that, we might better understand those words. We might better understand verses 9 through 16. There's something I may say to you all after class tonight after that about that. But this may answer the question that, that Boyd was asking. In verses 17 through 22, there is a protest of innocence. And the text says, all this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you. And we've not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. And our steps have not deviated from your ways. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, let me list a couple of historical psalms. And I love these psalms. Um, You find a history of Israel in Psalm 78, which has in all 72 verses... You have in Psalm 105 and 106, basically in two long psalms uh, that are both around 47 and 48 verses, not remembering exactly, uh, it sums up basically all of what's in Psalm 78 and more. But in these historical psalms, it is stressed that God has been good to Israel God has blessed Israel and God appears with pouring out blessings over and over again. Israel, Israel's unfaithfulness, their foolishness, their sinfulness are all stressed in these same passages. And usually when the history of Israel is told, the history of Israel keeps making these two points. The goodness of God and the sinfulness of Israel. And it is interesting to me that both of these points are highlighted by the other. God's goodness appears even more amazing in light of Israel's foolishness and sinfulness. And Israel's foolishness appears more unexcusable in light of God's goodness. And you have the same kind of thing done not just in the Psalms, but you have it done in a passage like Nehemiah 9, which is the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. You have the same kind of thing in uh, passages like um, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 23, Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, very allegorical but but all of them tell the story of Israel's history, stressing, stressing God's goodness 
and Israel's foolishness and Israel's sinfulness. You very rarely find... It, it, matter of fact, I do not know if it's without precedent. I, I'm just simply trying to be careful about how I say it. It may be unprecedented that you find a protest like this on a national level where the people's state were innocent. It may be unprecedented biblically. So this really makes this section stand out. One writer said no other psalm makes any kind of claims like this of national fidelity. So they had a miserable past and they had a terrible present. But they state, look at how they describe their faithfulness. In verse verse, verse 17, we have not forgotten you. Now that word forgotten is going to be used three times here to the rest of the psalm. We've not forgotten you. And what verse is that? That's verse 17. We've not forgotten you. Verse 17. We've not dealt falsely with your covenant. Now, we've not forgotten you. We've not dealt falsely with you. In verse 18, a third affirmation. Our heart has not turned back. Our heart has not turned back. If you look in Psalm 78, verse 57, that's a historical psalm. There, the same word is used, and it said Israel turned back. The same word used here to declare Israel's innocence is used in Psalm 78, verse 57, to declare their guilt. Here, our heart has not turned back. In verse 18, our steps have not deviated from your way. So there are basically four strong affirmations of the people's innocence in verses 17 and 18. And yet, in spite of their innocence, they haven't forgotten God. They haven't dealt falsely. They haven't turned back. They haven't deviated from God's path. God, in verse 19, has crushed us, crushed us, and covered us with the shadow of death. Now, it probably doesn't take... It probably can be seen in English translations. But this word, the shadow of death, is used in Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. God will not let us walk alone, Psalm 23 says. Through that valley of the shadow of death. Here, he says, Lord, you've covered us with this valley of the shadow of death. You've covered us with this shadow of death. He understands why this would be true if they had been unfaithful. He says in verse 20, If we had forgotten the name of our God, which he said in verse 17, they hadn't. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a foreign God or false God, 
This word for extended is used for Moses stretching out his hands in prayer in Exodus 9.29, among other places. So you can stretch out your hands in prayer to the true God, as Moses did, or you can extend your hands to a strange God or false God. The sin of the Old Testament is idolatry. And here the writer is affirming that Israel has not been guilty. We have not forgotten the Lord. We've not extended our hands to strange gods. And he knows in saying this that God knows whether he speaks truth. He says in verse 21, Would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He's not going to lie. Because God would know better. God will know better whether these things are true or not. But He says, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The idea of sheep is found both in verse 11 and in verse 22. God had... God had given the people up as sheep to be eaten. We were led as sheep to the slaughter. That is a common picture in the Bible of someone being innocent and someone being unknowing to be brought away to a terrible fate. You see it used in Jeremiah 11 in verse 19. Jeremiah didn't know anything about the plots against his life and he said, I was like a sheep being led to the slaughter. It is a description in Isaiah 53 verse 7 of the servant of the Lord. As a sheep before his shears is dumb and uh, he did not open his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, the text tells us. And that of course is quoted by the eunuch or quoted by Philip to the eunuch and applied to Jesus. So, also notice in verse 22 that phrase, all day long. All day long is used in verse 8. They had boasted in God. All day long. It's used in verse 15. Where the text tells us they had experienced dishonor all day long. And now, the Bible tells us all day long, we are like sheep being slaughtered. It is like a slaughterhouse for sheep. And the people have not done anything that they can detect. It makes them guilty. Now, a couple of things to say about this text. One statement that I ran across uh, every person will have an experience of feeling unjustly punished at some point in life. And every believer 
will question God concerning justice at some point in his life. The words of Psalm 44 affirm that God invites believers to cry out, to ask questions, to reflect our own faithfulness, and call God to account for what is happening in our lives. And while answers may elude us, we may affirm along with the psalmist that God's loving kindness is the compelling reason for us to be confident in the end. God will redeem us and God will be a help for us. I want to tell you something amazing. It's amazing to me these words find their way in Scripture. Because the end of the psalm doesn't wrap it up. And in a a certain sense, there'll be a little bit of that. But you have to read it very carefully. But but the end of the psalm doesn't wrap it all up. It leaves the question open. You see believers pouring out their heart to God. Begging God's deliverance when they don't know why they're experiencing what they are. Now, first I want to go, boy, did, did that answer your question? Yes. Yes, okay. it does. A lot of the words that were used throughout verses 9 through 16 in particular are used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the consequences of sin. For example, all these phrases like a reproach, a scoffing, a derision, a byword, a laughing stock in verses 13 and 14. Deuteronomy 28 verse 37 uses those in the context of the curses of the covenant. If you are unfaithful, you will experience this. You will be made a laughing stock among those around you. But that was a curse for their sin. If you are not guilty, if you are guilty before me, I'm not going to go out with you in battle against your enemies. And one of, in, in a thousand of you will go out and you will be chased by one if you're unfaithful. But that's if you're unfaithful. Here, they've been faithful and God hasn't gone out with their armies. Someone commented this psalm is like a national Job. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A national a national book of Job. Um, and pouring out the whole nation's feelings. And we understand innocent individuals more than we can understand an innocent nation. Uh, but 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 this is what they are affirming. You you I can almost see if we could think of the group, a faithful remnant saying these words. You know, like a yeah. maybe a Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego almost. Yeah. yeah. But the whole people? No. So it, because even, even in the captivity, there were other Jews taken into captivity who apparently went ahead and ate the meat that Nebuchadnezzar gave and probably bowed down to his image. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel don't. They don't. 
So, I, I know it is very difficult to think, where can you find a time the nation has been that loyal and been that faithful? Did, did y'all have anything, uh, you know, you don't have to share it if you don't want, but y'all, could, there's a deep idea there. The only, the only thing that I could think of that maybe someone can really relate to would be like the Jews in the Holocaust. Uh-huh. It felt like they were remaining yes. faithful and still yes. all these atrocities happened to them. Yes. yes. Well, don't you think... It seems like that kind of catastrophic event that calls forth this. It does. It doesn't seem like it was just a... I'm not meaning this to be facetious, but... but you know, I could care less about who wins the Olympics. Foolishness. But some people grieve over those things. That's nothing. You know, but this is a catastrophe. But go ahead. Well, don't don't you think that we feel like if we're if we're doing right, that everything ought to be our lives ought to be Sure we did. Sure we did. And if we're doing most things right, you know, we feel like things should be, if we do one thing right, we feel like things should be going well. I mean, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, we do. And I think we tend to view ourselves, and, and don't get me wrong here, we tend to view ourselves as, you know, I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. If we really grasp how horrible our sins are, how great our rebellion is, I don't know if we would have that picture. I love the answer that one radio personality gives when asked, how are you doing? And you'll always say, better than I deserve. Because we're always doing better than we deserve. Um, And am I saying to you that I've got that down? No. I can protest with the best of them when I think I am suffering unjustly. Now, I'm not saying I've got that down, but I'm saying if we all understood we deserved help and came to terms with that thought, and realize what a marvelous thing it is God saves us, that would change our perspective some. But, I don't want to say that to minimize the pain of the present either. I'm not trying to say... Now, someone had their hand up. I don't know if it's Dorothy or Mary. Mary. My thought was that they're a little deceived in in their innocence. I mean, just because, yeah. you know, it's presented this way, is it actually that way in God's eyes, or is this how they see themselves? That is a good that question. That's one thought I had. That is a good question, and I don't know the answer. Yeah. I, I, I was I, trying to think of, like, in terms of the whole nation, I can't think of a time where they could I, honestly say this. I will say, I will say that they are conscious in verse 21 God knows everything, and so God God knows whether what we're saying is true. But that doesn't mean they knew everything. Right. Now, even if they, I think that's part of the purpose of the Ezekiel eight, where Ezekiel is shown visions of the temple, and, and, and the people of Ju- Israel may think, "Oh, Judah doesn't deserve for the temple to be destroyed, but this shouldn't happen." And God shows Ezekiel what's going on in the temple. 
He shows Ezekiel that there are the highest, most powerful, most religious people in the nation secretly worshiping idols in a temple. And he's showing Ezekiel, you may think the people don't deserve this, but I want you to see what I see. And they think I don't see. So that's right. I know what you're saying, Mary. Whether it applies, I don't know. But but I will say there is a tendency, and I think that's what Boyd was saying, for us to affirm our innocence when we're not really. And you remember remember the case in First Samuel four. You know everything in First Samuel one through three. Samuel's a good guy, and Eli has done a good job apparently training him. But Eli's sons are an utter disaster, an utter disaster. And then they lose in battle. And you know what the people say? When they go up to battle against Philip, why is the Lord doing this to us? And, and they come up with the bright idea of going and getting the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they've forgotten the Lord, but bringing His Ark into, into camp isn't going to help. Now, Mike, I saw your hand and then Bob's hand too. I was just trying to think that there were some times in the Psalms where uh, David, though an imperfect man, pleads his innocence You're right. in contrast to the wicked enemies that are pursuing him. So I don't know if that has anything to do with this. Yeah, it may. It may. Uh, Psalm 41, 4, he affirmed, uh, heal my soul for I've sinned against you. And yet he also affirms uh, in this that um, he affirms his innocence to some degree in that psalm I just studied that psalm not long ago I should know this um, the mind is maybe uh, psalm 5 where uh, uh, David's talking about uh, the, the bloodthirsty and deceitful men but yeah. he though imperfect is, is uh, saying that he is going to stay faithful to Yes, yes. Psalm 69, 4 and 5 does that too. There's several that do it. I was just trying to get the example from the one we studied recently. Is it verse 12? It says, as for me, you uphold me in my integrity. My integrity, yeah, that's it. Good good job. She can help me right there. Okay, Bob. um, um, I think I've lost it. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I was I was along the line of this limited voice that okay. John was kind of talking about. Yeah. You know this this yeah. narrower voice. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm I'm on board with that myself. So, well, I, we'll see something in just a second that I think shows us shows us a limitation of that idea. Uh, but let's look at verses 23 through 26 as I, we I close. I would throw out there just one okay. thing. Yeah, sure. There's, there seems to be no consideration of the limits of the long-suffering of God in this, you know. Yeah. Uh, well... He's acting in a way that's causing uh, this, this complaint that you will is crying out. We have to understand, and God help us here, we are finite creatures who can only live in space and time. And we can't see the big picture purpose of God all worked out sometimes in our lifetimes. And because of that tension, it may be God is acting on the very thing we're talking about, but it's happening slowly. And we won't see it all come to fruition in our lives. 
I don't know if that made sense, but but I hope it does. In verse 23, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Have you ever prayed that? Exactly like that? I, I haven't. I mean, I'm not accusing this of being blasphemous, but I can understand how if someone got up and said, Lord, wake up! Don't sleep forever. Would every everybody be shocked at such a prayer? But they are praying this. Do you sleep, O Lord? Awake! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? And forget our affliction and our oppression. For our soul has sunk down into death. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help. And redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Um, so many things right there. The word sleep that's used here is only used of God twice in the Psalms. The word sleep, it's used here in 44.23 and it's used in Psalm 121 verse 4. And what 121.4 tells us is the God of Israel does not slumber nor sleep. He doesn't slumber nor sleep. And Psalm 42.44.23 says, Why do you sleep, O Lord? But the words awake and arouse you. We've seen them before. As early as Psalm 7 verse 6. Rise up, O God. Arouse yourself. Awake. God is pictured in a surprising way in Psalm 78 verse 65. Psalm 78 verse 65. The Lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. The Lord awoke us from sleep. It must use a different word for sleep because that wasn't uh, in my references there. But the Lord awoke us from sleep as a warrior overcome by wine. You don't think of that comparison with God often. But why do you hide your face and forget our affliction? Did you notice the word forget? In verse... 17 in verse 20 the people had not forgotten God but in verse 24 God has forgotten them God has forgotten them why do you hide your face and forget our affliction, for our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth, or to the dust, to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And the last word of the psalm, this is a ray of hope. The last word of the psalm is the word loving kindness. Redeem us. By your loving kindness, he appeals to the nature of God. God's loving kindness and mercy as a hope for salvation. What else do you have to say before we talk a little bit about applying to Jesus, Brad? Um, the high school class we've been studying, Minor Prophets and Habakkuk, you know, has some of that yes, same yes, language, same idea. national um, 
cry of Job again. Yes. And you know his his plea there. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? Will I, and will you not hear? I cry out to thee, violence. Yet you do not save. And God answers in chapter two, verse three. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. And just that, like, I've got this taken care of. Be patient. I've got my own timing here. Um, Relax a little bit. I'm glad you mentioned Habakkuk. Because I shouldn't have let it slip before. Habakkuk is another illustration with all he talks about, he starts out with complaining how wicked Israel is. He's not complaining how innocent they are. He says, Lord, look how wicked they are. You're not doing anything. But he finds trouble that, Lord, how can you use somebody more wicked than us to judge us? But, but you're right. It's a great opportunity to teach that book. And I hope um, you're being blessed by it, though you are, because it's uh, that's a powerful book. And that is, a, that is, Habakkuk is the Job of the Minor Prophets. And um, so, thank you for introducing that. Um, what else should we ask about in verses 23 through 26? Um, let's see if there was any other statement. Let's see. The dev- this is a statement from Derek Kidner. The divine sleep, the aloofness, the inattention of verse 23 are the appearances. The reality behind them is given in the last word, God's loving kindness. Another writer said, Despite all, God will vindicate His covenant love. The bewilderment has not been removed, but faith shines gloriously. They still maintain that God loves. I I do want to say something here. You know, somebody who prays a prayer like this hasn't lost faith. They haven't lost faith. They just can't figure out why God is acting the way He does. It's because of their strong faith in God's goodness and justice and loyalty and loving kindness. It's because of that strong belief that they have trouble reconciling that with explaining all that happens in history. And these are not cries of unbelief. These are cries of faith trying to make sense of a nonsensical world. And I think part of their purpose here is that we can pray these prayers in times of crisis. And did God answer this prayer? Apparently so. But what are some ways, and let's start with the first of the chapter and just go through. The earlier this is in the chapter, the better off, okay? What are some ways you see Psalm 44 speaking of Jesus? Go ahead and call it out if you want while I'm erasing and writing. Okay, I know you see something here. Well, verse 3, because He favored us, He came in the first place. 
Okay, his favor, his love, really the whole picture of 44. This is talking about how God saved us. There is a difference in this sense. He's he's using the word saved in the sense of a military deliverance. But he did not save us by our bow and our sword. He saved us by his strength. Now, in the New Testament, when the word saved is used, it is rarely used in that kind of... Well, I don't know if I should say that. Because the word saved is used of physical healings when Jesus does miracles. But we think in a more spiritual term of deliverance from sin, deliverance from death, and eternal life. But is deliverance by our arm and our sword and our strength? Or is it by God's power? Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 tells how we were in sin... But God, but being rich in mercy, by His great love with which He loved us, raised us up to sit with Christ in heavenly places. By grace, you're saved by faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Is that saying we're totally passive in salvation? No. Not at all. They weren't totally passive in their history. They had to go out to battle trusting God to give them victory. But it is to say salvation doesn't come by our our arm and our strength. It is His achievement, not ours. It is He who has saved us. The story of Israel was the story of God's faithfulness to Israel. Not Israel's faithfulness to God, but God's faithfulness to them. And so in the New Testament and beyond. Church history isn't the story of man's faithfulness to God. For often we have been unfaithful, but God's faithfulness to us. The Bible says... All day long we boast in you. And Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 14, May it be that I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Now, I would say in a certain sense that everything... Everything in verses 9 through 16 about Israel's disgrace and humiliation, that all of that is finds its ultimate fulfillment in the cross. All of that shame and humiliation and a byword and a mocking and a proverb and being handed over as sheep uh, to, to be slaughtered. All of this... Is fulfilled in the cross. And Israel protested that they were innocent. And yet the only absolutely innocent sufferer is Jesus. 
You want someone who suffered innocently? He is it. I know you've heard at some point people say, well, I'll tell you, if I were God, I wouldn't let anybody have cancer. I wouldn't let anybody do this. I wouldn't let any children be born with these difficulties. Have you ever heard anybody say, if I were God, I'll tell you what I would do. I would send my son to this earth to be mocked, to be spit upon, and to be murdered in the most horrible and tortured way that the human mind can conceive. Have you ever heard anybody say that? You never will either. You never will. He is the ultimate innocent sufferer. And we're going to focus more on verse 22 in just a moment. But you see that question? Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? In verse 23? Like the disciples on the boat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The disciples on the boat in Mark 4, verses 35. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? He had it all in control even though he seemed like he was asleep. And I want to tell you, regardless of how the world looks, and regardless of how distraught God's people become, and I become, I'm not acting like I'm immune, I become, God isn't asleep, but God has it all under control and God will bring it to a triumphant conclusion it's, it's like it's like Satan asking God will Job serve you for nothing yeah will he serve you even if he can't see any benefit in it now where is verse 22 before you go to that okay verse 12 okay you sell your people cheaply and have not profited for their sales. I guess you're talking about Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Yes, if this could be said of Israel, this could be said of Jesus, couldn't it? And the events surrounding there. Anybody else have any points like that that I'm missing? Because we could talk about verse 22 a long time. Now, where is verse 22 quoted in the New Testament? Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 36. Now, I'm going to tell you. There aren't many sadder verses in the Old Testament than that. But for your sake... We are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. There aren't many sadder passages in the New Testament than that. Sadder passages in the Old Testament than that. But I want to tell you this. 
there aren't many more triumphant passages in the New Testament than this context here in Romans 8. Romans 8, 36, Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, let me make another point. And this is, Bob, what I said I was going to come back to about the innocence of people. These Christians are innocent about whom this is said. So could it really be that Israel was innocent? In Psalm 44, verse 20, it could be. We don't see that point in their history too clearly. But it could be. But, that's what verse 36 says. Do you know what verse 35 of Romans 8 says? Verse 35 of Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The Bible is saying there right before this statement that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. And right after this statement in verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him that loved us. On each side of this statement, for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are led as sheep to the slaughter. On either side of it are two of the most profoundly powerful statements of encouragement in all the New Testament. And it's the same way. If you look at the whole context in Romans 8, we could say all of Romans 8, but particularly 31 through 39. In verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? What a powerful statement that is. In verse 38 and 39, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What has transformed What has transformed this sad passage to a celebration of victory? What has done it? Well, look at verse 24. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. This is not saying Christ is the one who condemns now. I'm picking up in the middle of a sentence. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, He who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. What I am saying is that the death and resurrection of Jesus has transformed this passage of despair into a passage filled with hope. The death and resurrection of Jesus has altered the way we look at that passage. It changes everything. It changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. And now, and so we can see If we are like the people in Psalm 44 and we are suffering and we haven't done anything wrong and we protest our innocence, if we never experience vindication in life, we will experience vindication. We will still be vindicated. 
And those people in Israel who suffered doing the right thing, one day we will see them vindicated. And if we are the same in our faith, one day the world will see us vindicated. I do appreciate you bearing with us. I thought it may be risky as far as time. Thank you. Brad, do you have a song? Brad, I, I'm going to let Brad lead us in this song first. And then I want to make an announcement. Let turn this off for that. And um, so... Twenty-four verses. Two sides. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, the first one through fourteen uh, to the tune of "Take Time to Be Holy." The line there is just for reference because there's seven verses on this side, so just so you can uh, kind of keep track of where you're at. So, um, we'll probably try to keep the tempo up on this one just so we can get through it. So. No me, oh God, we have heard and our fathers have told what wonders you did in the great days of old, when nations were crushed and cast by your hands, you planted our Shame all day and forever. 
things to your name, but you have forsaken to shame brought our bows. No more into battle, you go with our hosts. You make us turn back from the foe in dismay. And spoilers who hate us have made us their prey. You give us like shame to be slaughtered for food. Among all the nations, you sell up your people to strangers for naught. Their to your treasury, no increase has brought. You make all our neighbors reproach us in pride. And cause those around us to scoff and deride. Our name among nations, not by word you've made. The people all laugh at us, shaking the head. Conclude with... Uh, 15 through 26, to the tune of My Jesus, I Love Thee. Who knows every all 